Hi, this is filmmaker and author Michael Morin. Whenever I'm not riding my bike around the Davis campus, I'm listening to 90.3 KDVS College Radio right here. FM. Cool. This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to today's program, and a very special program it promises to be. Two days from now, November 22nd, 2003, will mark the 40th anniversary of the death of President John Kennedy. It's been a theme, a recurrent theme, on the public affairs broadcasting on this station this week. Uh, in fact, it started a little while, it started a ways back. We had Dr. Cyril Wecht on our program on October 30th to talk about his book, um, Mortal Evidence, and also he talked about a previous book, Cause of Death. Dr. Wecht is very interested in the assassination of Kennedy, and a lot of other uh, crime scene investigator-type matters regarding um, the deaths of the famous and, and, and not-so-famous. Dr. West is hosting a conference in Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, which I will be attending this week, and we'll bring you a report on that in the programs to come. I honestly don't think I'd be talking to you through this uh, microphone right now if an odd thing hadn't have happened a couple years ago. I went to go see a movie. The movie was Oliver Stone's JFK. The subject of the Kennedy assassination had interested me for a long time, but I'd more or less given up on ever getting to the bottom of the matter. But I saw this movie, and like a lot of Americans, I got angry. Uh, I knew that there were a lot of documents that were hidden, but after seeing this refresher course that the movie provided and, and being reminded of the fact that, you know, reams of documents have been hidden away literally for decades, I got pretty steamed and set out to satisfy myself that I could figure out what happened in this mysterious matter of the Kennedy assassination back in 1963. Now, if you're a freshman college student today here at UC Davis, age 18, you're born in 1985, which separates you from 1963 by 22 years, the same interval that the Kennedy assassinations is separated from Pearl Harbor by. Now, these are red-letter days, uh, for persons belonging to the generation that would have been uh, exposed to 1941 or 1963. I'm in the latter category. Such events don't happen all that often. I'm quite certain that 50 years from now, people who are still alive will be able to tell you exactly where they were on September 11th, 2001, when they got the word of the terrorist attacks taking place here in the United States. Now, this week on the major media outlets, you're going to be told that uh, as we revisit the Kennedy assassination, you're going to be told once again, well, it looks as though the Warren Commission got it right. ABC News will be telling you, I think, tonight that uh, they've confirmed beyond a doubt that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone when he shot President Kennedy. This is based on a computer analysis of the Zapruder film and other things that showed the limousine moving through the Dealey Plaza that day back in 63, uh, how you can determine from a computer that it indeed was Oswald up in the, in the building, well, come on, you can't. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, on the particulars today. I'm not going to spend much time at all. But I can tell you this. If Oswald 
shot that rifle. He had to have completed the assassination, hidden the rifle on the far side of the building, gone down four flights of stairs, gone into the lunchroom, crossed over, bought a Coke, turned around, and then unruffled and unhurried, stood there calmly as a motorcycle cop running up the steps to investigate jams a pistol in his belly and demands to know whether he worked there. Oh, and by the way, during the key 75 to 90 second interval, there were people on the stairway he had to run down who didn't see him. If you haven't seen the movie JFK, I recommend you get the new DVD that's out of the director's cut. Zachary Sklar, the co-writer of the screenplay, was on our program last week, and Danny Schechter produced the companion video to that same director's cut, which is now also out on DVD. Danny Schechter joined us on a special edition of this program that aired Tuesday on Jeff Kravitz's time slot. A third and final person from that movie will be joining us on today's program, Jane Rusconi. Jane was the research coordinator for Oliver Stone on that movie and I think helped keep it honest. Kept a lot of good research at his disposal to make sure that the scenes you saw really had some grounding in eyewitness testimony. She'll be joining us in our second segment. In our third segment today, San Francisco eye surgeon Dr. Gary Aguilar will come on this program to talk a bit about this same matter. Dr. Aguilar is one of the very select number of physicians who's been allowed by the Kennedy family attorneys to go to the National Archives and actually examine the autopsy materials of the late 35th president. He's got some very provocative things to say about what he's seen and what he has uh, determined from his talking to the doctors that treated Kennedy that day and the autopsy physicians and reviewing their testimony. That will be interesting. So stay tuned by all means to for our second and third segments today. But joining us now is Stuart Gardner to talk about our inaugural event that took place on Monday here in Sacramento as the, uh, the, the eyes of the world turned upon the steps of the state capitol to witness the swearing-in of our new governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, of course, two days ago, we aired on Jeffrey Kravitz's program, Panic Attack, uh, a little talk about the inaugural you attended the day before for our new governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, on Monday, I went to Arnold Schwarzenegger's inauguration. Wonderful event. I enjoyed it immensely. (laughs) Now, was there there a Kennedy-esque feel there? Because I guess that uh, the Shrivers were all there. Sarge Shriver, the former 1972 uh, vice presidential candidate. Yeah, it's real strange. It's almost like you're in the twilight zone to go and see the Republicans and the Kennedys together. It's it's a very strange feeling. It's certainly going to be a very interesting governorship. Now, I ran into you. Of course, as I told people on Tuesday, I'm walking along thinking, like, I know someone in this crowd. I do not know who yet. And then all of a sudden, you and Amy show up dressed to the nines and looking like most people. I'm pretty, pretty happy to attend this festive occasion. Very enjoyable. I would say he knocked the speech dead. In fact, I was watching and I was thinking, this is perfect for an actor. I mean, he learned his lines well, yeah. <laughs> and he played the part extremely perfect. Right. And it was it was a very gracious speech, and it was also a he's laid out his agenda. And you said that I think of the line they had about uh, when, when, back in '66 when it was Reagan for governor, to which Jack Warner, the head of Warner Brothers, says, "No, no, 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 Jimmy Stewart for governor, Ronald Reagan for best friend." <laughs> <laughs> 
But it certainly was a mixture from what I saw. I ran into you and you, and you went off and then I, I started noticing the people streaming out of the event. And I was walking along and all of a sudden Danny DeVito walks by with, uh, with uh, his wife, what's her name? Rhea Perlman from Cheers, I guess. And I walked past Mr. DeVito, and there's Jack Valenny walking by. Of course, a name probably not familiar to our listening audience. But uh, Jack Valenny was uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson's one of his aides, like Bill Moyers, back the guy that Johnson relied on to get a lot of things done. He has been, for the past something like 25 or 30 years, the head of the Motion, not the Motion Picture Academy, but I can't think of their name, but they're the group that is that, that Sony Pictures Paramount the, the people that make motion pictures, they have a little club, and their head man, their sort of baseball commissioner, has been for quite some time Mr. Valeni. But anyway, Valeni's, you know, Valeni's a, a major power player and has been for a long time. And it so happens, back in 1963, he had just gotten his job at becoming an aide for Lyndon Johnson like a week or two before November 22nd. And in that famous photo where Johnson is being sworn in on Air Force One with Jackie Kennedy uh, standing next to him, the blood still on her coat, uh, right behind them is Jack Valenny. I mean, he was there on the plane. He was there, a witness to history. And I would have loved to have been able, these 40 years later, to have just had a few words with him. I, unfortunately, by the, time, by the time I sort of thought of this approach, as often is the case, he was long gone. So an opportunity missed. But uh, I guess we can email him, I guess. Yeah, you could do that. Yeah, I passed you in the crowd. Yeah, the <laughs> you probably don't thing. remember me. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of movers and shakers, I'm sure, whose face may not have been known to the public. Oh, yeah. And walking through, security was very tight. They had. Uh, were they checking ID? Oh, they checked ID. They checked your purse. They checked, you know, they didn't pat you down, but they went through the metal detector. Yeah. They pulled everything out. They had bomb-sniffing dogs all over the place. Really? They had guys up on the roof looking for snipers. It was uh, it was tight security. Hmm. A lot of police. Yeah. Well, then, um, as uh, you'll, you'll love this story. As I walked past uh, Valeni, out comes a man that I met, thanks to you, Bill Simon, last year. And he had a, a stunned... Maybe stunned isn't the right word, but he had an introspective look on his face because naturally everyone in the crowd was looking at him like there was the guy that would have been would have been governor had he beaten Gray Davis. And in fact, what the amazing thing about Simon is he ran this most astoundingly inept campaign and yet still managed to not do that badly against Davis. That's when they knew Davis was vulnerable. Uh, yeah, Bill Simon. He didn't seem to be much of a candidate. As you took me to that Portuguese Lodge, I was quite amused by him coming out and saying, you want me to cook you some steak? (laughs) And the crowd's like, yeah. And then I realized these 400 400 steaks mysteriously all of a sudden appear the second he's volunteered to cook them for everybody, which I thought was quite a bit of uh, of political sleight of hand. Yeah, he had the apron and everything. (laughs) Yeah, pose for the picture with the grill. Yeah, I'm cooking you all these steaks. Sure I am. Anyway, he's looking rather, I don't know, he's looking inward, clearly, as he's walking. People, of course, are looking at him like, you know, there must be a a pregnant pause as people are checking out. There he is. There's the man that would be governor. He walks past me and I turn around and there's a big tall man that basically accosts him with a big smile. It turns out to be Bob Mulholland. (laughs) <laughs> who I had met also in the capacity of this radio show. He's the, um, well, he's the head of the, the California Democratic Party. Oh, and yeah. the last time I saw him, he was directing at 15th Street the anti-Arnold rally that was taking place <laughs> at Memorial Auditorium. Yeah. 
So he and I had a brief conversation about uh, Dick Tuck, which we should talk about Dick Tuck in a future show. Mark that down. You're going to come back and we're going to talk about Dick Tuck and political dirty tricks. But Bob Mulholland couldn't resist the moment of leaning over to Bill Simon with a big grin and saying like, well, Bill, this isn't the ceremony you were hoping for. (laughs) (laughs) To which Simon was responding with this kind of a, oh, that's right, Bob. You know, kind of like, you know, sock in the arm kind of thing, like hearty, har, har. And I'm thinking, I'm sure these two men hate each other. (laughs) Yeah. I tell you what, you're sitting there nice and reflective moment and just have this guy just lay out <laughs> i mean I'm, let me kick you down yeah. while you're down yeah i'm sure as i was walking to that lunch with the new governor one of the people i didn't want to run into if i was bill simon was big bob mulholland standing there <laughs> yeah. he probably first thing goes over to arnold schwarzenegger and says we got to get rid of this guy <laughs> <laughs> All right, Stuart, before you go, and as long as we have you here, uh, you are an attorney, and we mentioned on that show with uh, for Jeff Kravitz last week about this 15-year penalty being asked in a pot trial. Could you give us uh, a minute uh, a minute of your summary of that idea? Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm a criminal defense attorney, and 15 years for growing some marijuana. Are you kidding? This is horrible. I don't know. I, I just sometimes I look back and just cringe. Yeah. Basically, this guy's biggest crime is he's too slow. <laughs> yeah, well, right. They said that he had he had a pistol, a rifle, and a shotgun at his disposal, but he wasn't armed when they got him. By all accounts, he didn't plant the field. He's not selling the the the, Even the bales if he was, of marijuana. So what? It's right. marijuana. I know. Who cares? Well, that's kind of how I'm feeling. But what? This 15 years. You got to be kidding. Can well, we figure out? He, we could well, use this money. You're talking about what? Yeah. 300, 450,000 incarcerate this guy for I would 15 think. years. I would think. For what? It just didn't talk about not sending a message. The war on drugs is lost. It's amazing how draconian our government can be and how stupid our government can be. I mean, other people who commit murders don't get full 15 years. And uh, react to this quote, if you would. U.S. Attorney McGregor Scott vehemently supports the prosecutions generally of these pot plant cases, and the Palomino case specifically. Quote, This was a very large grow, and anyone involved would know this. These operations are run by large Mexican cartels. It's not a perfect world from our perspective. We'd love to be able to go after the guys in Mexico who are behind all this. And he goes on to say that there's sometimes shootings involved in these cases, so we're going to throw the book at this guy. Your reaction? He's someone who I don't have a great deal of respect from. He's from Reading. Yeah. And uh, he's kind of a very draconian prosecutor right. and for for him to give this guy 15 years it, it's so kind, it, did, kind of typical and it's very yeah. sad but does is this written up when it's all said and done i mean does he get credit for a big w in the you know in, his, in, in that column as if he'd actually done some wonderful thing of course depends who his boss is wow yeah if you have a boss say the san francisco da terrence allenan yeah he'd probably give you an l because <laughs> you're a loser this is really a ridiculous uh, miscarriage of justice. But they did accuse him of uh, conspiracy, and today is a day we're going to talk in the next two segments about a possible conspiracy in 1963. So as your parting effort today, could you tell the listening audience, what's the legal definition of conspiracy? What goes into that? Conspiracy is an agreement and then a substantial step towards doing the agreement. For instance, I would say, hey, Doug, let's go knock over the normal. 
the bank down the street. Okay. Do you agree? And and they say, okay, I'll go get a gun. And I run down. I buy a gun. We've got a conspiracy to commit bank robbery. You, you need a you need a substantial a substantial step. step. And you know what? You can have the substantial step, then chicken out, and you're still guilty of the conspiracy. So if back in 1963 people had been helping. Lee Oswald, as Jim Garrison contended and later evidence suggested had been the case, they'd been helping him, then uh, that right there would have made them legitimate co-conspirators. If you're, you're actively aiding and abetting, usually you do have a conspiracy. Let's end on that. Thanks again. Stuart Gardner, attorney at law. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. This is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. We will return shortly with Jane Rusconi, Los Angeles screenwriter and former research coordinator for Oliver Stone for the movie JFK. We'll be right back.